Thank you all for that warm response, and thank you for coming out on this hot afternoon for the last of four National Theatre platforms on this remarkable production of Angels in America. Uh, I'm Matt Wolf, the London theatre critic of the International New York Times. Uh, my far right, uh, an actor who was part of a historic production on this very stage uh, over a decade ago, Alan Bennett's wonderful play, The History Boys, which was then, of course, filmed. Uh, he's done television in America, Looking Quantico, A View from the Bridge on Broadway, and he's playing Joe Pitt, the Mormon, in Angels in America, Russell Tovey. Thank you. I'll clap you. I'll give you a clap. I'll introduce you. And to my immediate right, and quite a profound thing for me, because this uh, man is somebody I can honestly say, I think I've seen every single one of your New York stage appearances except Merlin. Uh, I first saw Nathan on Broadway in 1982 in a Circle in the Square revival of Present Laughter with George C. Scott, and it's been a great pleasure watching him ever since, most recently uh, in New York in giving a fantastically feisty and fiery performance in the front page, and of course, remarkable as Roy Cohn in Angels in America, Nathan Lane. So, gentlemen, thank you both, of course, for being with us today. Uh, maybe start with just a little bit about kind of what you knew about the play beforehand, because the play has been around a while. It was at the National in 1992. It was on Broadway, directed by George Wolfe. It had been filmed by Mike Nichols. But not everyone sees every play or every film. So when you came to do this, how much did you sort of know about it? How familiar were you with it? Uh, I was familiar because I had seen the, the Broadway production and, uh, and, of course, the Mike Nichols film on HBO. And, and um, there was an off-Broadway production mm -hmm. in 2010 that I didn't see. But um, it was not a play that, or a role, actually, that was on my radar. I just, it came up because, um, uh, uh, what do you want to talk? You talk a little about yep. Your, about uh, your no, no, about, about your, your career. <laughs> no, no, I mean about your, you know, your experience with the play. Uh, yeah, well, I, I saw the, the Mike Nichols HBO film when I was about seventeen, and I was in a relationship with someone I didn't really like, and we were in <laughs> we were in Rhodes, and uh, he would go off. He was singing over there. He would go off and sing, and I watched the show back to back, and I remember being so inspired and going, "That is." probably the best bit of TV I've ever seen. I'll probably tell that to this day. I think it still is for me. And from that moment onwards, the angel Bethesda came because she's in a title sequence and then at the end, when everyone's with the angel at the end, uh, that became like a pilgrimage point for me. So for the last like 10 years from being in the History Boys, I've got selfies of me with parents, friends, ex-lovers, present lovers, <laughs> dog, all with... <laughs> The angel in the background, so I slightly astral projected this angelically to sort of happen mm. for me. So that was my journey into it, but I've never seen it on stage. I read it, obviously, after seeing the show, but I must have watched the show probably about eight, nine times all the way through. Nathan, was it a part you had been coveting, circling? Did it come no, as a no, surprise that's, that, to No, no, that's you? what I was uh, yeah. about to say. It, it, it came about because um, I was asked to have a dinner with Rufus Norris, who runs... Uh, the theater uh, in New York, because I was told he wanted to have more of a 
relationship with American actors and more of an exchange. And, and I said, sure, and he was, uh, he's a lovely man, and, and we hit it off. And he mentioned it in passing. He said, Marianne Elliott is going to direct Angels in America. And he said, you know, and you could play Roy Cohn, but th that would be up to her. And he, he made it seem, it was like just sort of very offhand. And I thought, oh, well, they'll get some great British actor to do it. And so, you know, so we talked about other plays. And then, and then, uh, and then a month or so later, they offered it to me. And I was, I was, <laughs> so I was surprised. And then I had a lunch with Marianne in New York, and she said, oh, well, that's, you know, that's why I sent him over to get you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he's so shy. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, and, and certainly I, I knew it was a great part. I had seen it done, and, and, uh, and then um, I reread the play, and, and it was other than having to leave home for mm. seven months. Mm. Uh, which was a huge commitment. It was kind of a no-brainer because it's such a tremendous role and the, the play is monumental. Mm. People may or may not realize when the play was first done at the National in 1992, it actually, there was a year gap between Millennium Approaches and Perestroika during which time there was also a cast change. So that original cast of Millennium Approaches never actually did Perestroika. And at that time, I remember it well because I was here for it, they were really regarded almost as two separate plays. Now Tony has them published <coughs> together, although he writes about them in different ways. He has distinct feelings about each one. So my question is, do you see them as two different plays or is it just part of one huge package? I, I, I personally see them as two different plays, obviously part of the same world and we're, we're the through line, but to, to me, and I think most of us, I speak for most of us, Millennium feels very concise, knows what it is exactly, it's very sharp, it's an hour shorter. <laughs> and then Perestroika is more poetic and dreamlike and drifty, and I think with the staging of Perestroika as well, it has this kind of more dreamlike quality. So they are definitely two different energies. Am I wrong saying that? No, the, you, whatever you want to say. It's, it's, a right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a free country. Yeah, it is, yeah. you're right. Um, <laughs> it's my country you have to worry about <laughs> saying the wrong thing. So no, well, I see yeah. it more as a, um, as a huge package. Uh, <laughs> 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 if you know what I mean. <laughs> I'm always more interested in the huge package. <laughs> Um, uh -huh. Yeah, I, I do see it as a, you know, it is a long journey. I mean, yes, famously, Millennium is the well-made play right. and Perestroika is the unwieldy one yeah. and the more poetic and, and surreal. And, uh, but it has some of, the, some of the best writing is in Perestroika. Uh, and I, I'm, uh, so yes, to me, it does feel uh, as tiring as it is to do the two-show day. I find it more satisfying because of we're going to tell the mm. entire story. How do you feel on a two-show day, Russell? Do you just do you have to gear yourself up for it? Are you, you know, downing vitamins backstage? What's happening? <laughs> I, I mean, I, t I take Barocca, but yeah. uh, <laughs> I don't know. You just get your head in the place. I mean, this show once you're in it, you can't escape. You're 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 ratcheting along and. Is, I mean, just going back to that about the two plays, though, mm. we don't ever refer to it as part one, part two. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? We always refer to it as millennium or perestroika. It's like, yeah. so it does feel for me two separate pieces. But yes, when you are doing a two-show day, um, it, there is definitely uh, a mindset you get in. Um, but 
the best thing about this is that this is the most hype show that I've ever been a part of, and it was completely sold out and bigged up before it opened. So the pressure was on us for the show, and thankfully it done incredibly well. So when you you're doing that 14 hours of stage work, and the audience's response at the end is what we're getting, it's it was a relief, and it was and it's amazing, and you're you're doing it. If you was going out there and there's like four people, and then one leaves in the interval. <laughs> It would be horrible. <laughs> It'd be horrible. I did a production of the Laramie Project once with Andrew Garfield. Mm. And one of the worst times, it was nine actors, and it was a, a space which isn't there anymore called the Sound Theatre, mm. which is in Leicester Square. And it probably sat about 500 people, and there was three people. Oh there was a couple there, and then there was Charles Spencer, the Telegraph. Oh yeah, from the Telegraph. Critic. So none of us were doing anything to him. <laughs> we were doing it all to this couple here who were, like, terrified. <laughs> Interval came. Only one of them came back because one of them felt ill. So there was nine of us giving this show oh no. to, a, to a critic we're trying to ignore and this poor woman on it by herself. Yeah, yeah. She had the night of her life, but <laughs> it, was, it was horrific. Yeah. It was just like, this is, what's this about? I think you can rely on this production, people coming back for yes. more. Uh, in fact, Nathan, on the press day, which, which I was at, it was very touching at the curtain call. It looked as you were bowing as if you were mouthing the word wow. It looked like it, and I thought that must be obviously a sense of incredible achievement. How, how has it felt for you? Um, well, you know, th we, were, uh, we rehearsed over three months, and, and uh, it was very intense. And the, the process here is different because you, we rehearsed over three months, and then they give you like 10 minutes to tech it and <laughs> get it on stage. And here, put this on. And, you know, it's sort of like, hey, yeah, just get on with it. And, um, so you have very few previews. I mean, the, the press day that mm -hmm. you, were, uh, you attended, mm -hmm. that was only the second time we'd ever done wow. the whole thing. Okay. So it, it, you're, you're working on adrenaline mm. and fear and, and uh, a lot of things. And it, it's, you're still getting used to the, the, the set. And, and the so um, it w yes, it was a great feeling of accomplishment, and uh, 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 obviously you want to live up to the writing, which is extraordinary, and, and you do you try to do your best mm -hmm. and not get in its way and just tell this story because it's 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 so beautiful mm -hmm. uh, what he's written, and um, you just want to honor that, mm -hmm. and and uh, and and uh, certainly we all. The other feeling was that we all bonded over that period of time in a rehearsal room. Of, and because it, it's, it's a hard, it's, it is a hard play. It's tricky. Uh, and, um, and so we, that brought us, I think, closer together. And, and, um, and it was, um, so by the time, at the end of that day, I had a friend here, Scott Whitman, mm, uh, sure. writer, lyricist, yeah. who... Uh, you know, was just knocked out by it, and, and uh, I was just, I was grateful to have someone that I knew here, because, uh, yes. uh, and um, yeah, we were obviously just so happy, it's, it, and I, everyone keeps telling me, you know, people here don't react that way at the end of plays, especially at the National, they tend not mm -hmm. to stand up and cheer and, and so mm -hmm. so it was very very moving to see that to see and I think you know the the great feeling is that it's it's a lot of people uh, who don't know the play who are discovering mm -hmm. it for the first time and just and they're knocked out by it mm -hmm. uh, the writing as well I was thinking two of Nathan's defining stage performance in New York recently uh, one in the front page the other in the Iceman Cometh have been plays where he makes a much delayed entrance 
uh, well into the play in both cases. In this play, you're there right after the rabbi. You guys are right there and you're doing hold and you've got that amazing telephone scene. What is that like, Nathan, to kind of kick off this extraordinary play from the start? Uh, well, it's, it's it always a little terrifying. Um, it's just that it's a, it's that, that is, it's a, that's a tricky thing because Russell, you know, even though he's, a, he's <laughs> the, in a way, the, my focal point, it's, I have to, I'm doing a lot of the talking mm -hmm. and so it's, it's always a little nerve-wracking. Um, I mean, now, it's, now we're more relaxed about it, but in the beginning it was, it was, it was slightly terrifying that I'll, you know, pushing the r buttons at the <laughs> right time and getting the, and the making the right noises and getting all of that uh, together. But, uh, you know, it's a scene about, um, you know, he's showing off. And he wants him to see what his world is. And I mean, that's the, underneath all of that technical stuff, that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to impress him. He's sort of flirting a little and showing him what his world is and could he fit in and become a, a Roy boy, so to speak. And because he's looking to, you know, to possibly p send someone into the Justice Department because he's got this, he knows, he's smelling that there's a possible, the, the potential disbarment and, and uh, so it, it's all of that is sort of <laughs> it's what's really going on but you've got to do, be doing all this other stuff and have conversations with five other people on the phone so well, it certainly works that's I the challenge oh thank I love, you I love the phrase Roy boy that's a great word a Roy boy yeah that's yeah. what he used to call yeah. the re that's what he yes the real guy Roy Cohn used to say of course we have to talk about your characters Joe Pitt is as far as I'm aware a fictional character Roy Cohn is unfortunately not a fictional character. Um, <laughs> Russell, I wonder if you could just say something about, as someone who is so wonderfully and happily at peace with your sexuality mm. as you are, mm. what is it like inhabiting this character who is so tormented by his? Um, well, I got to go home every night to my boyfriend and lay in bed with my boyfriend and be like, it's all all right. So I wasn't, I didn't, carry him with me too much but I mean to to exist in that state must be exhausting uh, and it, it's it's I don't know he's just incredibly damaged individual who's who's numb he's numbed himself and he's he hides behind so much that isn't there and it's tough and I wanted to make him I think because it feels like he could be the one that people project onto because he's Republican, because he's a Mormon, because of his values, because he's treated his wife badly, he's not come out to her, so he's kind of destroying her life, taking him with him. That people would project onto him that he's kind of a bad person, but I, w I, I desperately wanted to make him feel um, real and, and people to connect with him and, and to understand him and not see him as like a monster. And I think. I mean, I haven't seen enough productions, but from what I've heard, people have said that a lot of people find Joe Pitt like they go, and then at the end, when he's fucked at the end, when she just gives mm. him the tablets and leaves him with a slap, people are like, good. And mm. I never, I didn't want, I think I've had once there was an applause, and I was like, <laughs> but I, I never wanted anyone to ever feel like pleased for Joe's downfall. And he doesn't like get his ending, and he, his mum's friends with all the gays, and she's mm. got a new haircut by the fountain, 
but her son who's gay <laughs> is like, where is he? Where is he? <laughs> but that's a really interesting point because Joe is left out of that wonderful yeah. quartet at the end. Yeah. I mean, Roy's too, but Roy's dead by then. Um, and you think, well, what's Joe's salvation? What's his moment? Did you and Tony Kushner discuss that at all? I didn't think we get, got time. I, I, want, I wanted to. There was a rumor at some point that he wanted to write a third play about the pits, oh. which I'm uh -huh. pitching. But <laughs> otherwise, no, I mean, in, in the HBO show, there's a scene where they're watching carol singers. He's watching carol singers, and then his mum turns up and says, I'll see you at home later. And you know, it's desperately unhappy that he's living back with his mum, who he hates. Mm. But then it's like, there's some glimmer of hope, and there's some kind of, there's a relationship repair that's going on there, and that's going to, you can then go, okay, well, there's life. Whereas mm. he's left just vibrating in this place of absolute sadness. Mm. Does he deserve that? I don't think so. So mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure that he was a character that people feel for and understand and don't just project onto as being uh, Donald Trump. Mm. Nathan, you have been in a relationship for several decades, recently got married, many congratulations. How does that, you know, with that knowledge of the world you inhabit as you, how do you deal with Roy Cohn's level of self-loathing and self-disgust? Um, well, you know, you first you do a lot of research. I mean, and there isn't a lot about, uh, written about him. There's a lot written about the McCarthy era uh, in the 50s. And, um, but there's only this, this biography, Citizen Cohn, and then there's the, uh, his autobiography, <laughs> which is hilarious. Mm. <laughs> 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 that he was desperate to, to get out before mm -hmm. he died. Mm -hmm. and, but that's sort of interesting, too. Uh, it was written with this uh, kind of questionable reporter, Sidney Zion. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, it's all, like many people uh, or therapists might, uh, might tell you, it's, it all goes back to his childhood. And... He was, he was the, the only child. He was, um, he was a little Jewish prince, mm -hmm. and, and he was treated that way. He was very close to his mother. Um, I think he saw, he had an uncle who went to jail for um, something shady, and he, 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 they ran a bank, the family ran a bank, and he went to jail for several years. And the, the sort of the, the wasps, Bank, the wasp bankers brought down this little bank, um, mm. and and he was Uncle Bernie was sent to jail. I think he he realized he could never, he was different, and he was different because he was Jewish, and he was different because he was gay, and he could never allow himself to be vulnerable. That's that was the lesson he learned very early, and he was precocious. You know, he was brilliant. He was a brilliant guy. If only he had used it for good rather mm. than evil, mm. but. He was, uh, you know, as a kid, he was getting some, his, you know, his, his teacher got a parking ticket. He called, he got on a pay phone and called up his father, who was a judge, and got the, the teacher, you know, his t parking ticket, uh, you know, uh, taken care of. So he was power brokering, you know, as a kid. Because that's what he ultimately, even though he loved the law, uh, you know, as R Donald Trump once said, he's, he's a genius, but he's a lousy lawyer. <laughs> Many people mm. hired him just to frighten off the opposition mm. because they didn't want to have to deal with him uh, because he was just, you know, and he, it was easy to find people who hated him. 
so I talked to some people who were loyal to him, who, who loved him. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and, and um, you know, people who were, and you know, he was, a, he was just fascinating to be around. Liz Smith, the mm. columnist, mm. mostly <laughs> gossip columnists, Cindy Adams and Liz Smith. Mm. And, and, you know, that he was, she, you know, she had hated him from afar when she grew up in Texas, but she said to see him in action in New York, um, was an amazing thing. He was such a, uh, uh, you know, I mean, he was everywhere, and and he was all, you know, he planted items in the columns. He was always very from the get-go when he was working for McCarthy. He was close to columnists, and he would have items planted about himself, mm. or he would, and then later on, he would have items planted that he was dating so and so, or he was engaged to Barbara Walters, and because <laughs> they were friend, they were friends because. He had um, helped Barbara Walters' father mm. get out of a, a bad uh, scrape, scrape and um, was, uh, so she was forever grateful to him for that. So, you know, look, he could be fun. You know, as Cindy Adams said, if he liked you, he was, he was great. He was loyal, he was loving, he was charming, he was, uh, but if he didn't, he would kill you. Um, and and I, I sort of understand what the, the, the world that he traveled in representing you know, mafia dons and titans of industry, he just could not be gay. Mm. Now, after his mother died, as time went on, after his mother died, um, she was, and you know, that was, that was a very unhealthy <laughs> relationship. What was the thing about his mom ringing around when he didn't come oh home? Oh, yeah, no, his mother was, it was ridiculous. Even he was now in his 40s, and she would call up his coworkers and say, he didn't, I don't know where he is, you know, he, <laughs> it, it's raining, he didn't have an umbrella. <laughs> you... And, you know, they lived together for <laughs> years in this townhouse, in this shambling oh. townhouse. And it's, you know, I don't want to go on and on, but I already have. But, <laughs> you know, there's, it's interesting. You know, you also have to separate the real Roy Cohn from Tony Kushner's Roy Cohn. And they meet here and there. They intersect. But it's, a, you know, there, there are, uh, Tony has created this, a character that I, I feel empathy with. Um, and I, you know, I, I mean, the real guy was despicable. Mm. You know, he was just, and you know, people always describe him as pure evil. Mm. When he died of AIDS, people said it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's, and, but in Tony's hands, it makes for a fascinating character. And, and like, as Russell was saying, you know, you want to, I, what I wanted to do was show you who the, hum the human being underneath all of these despicable acts, you know, and that you see occasionally, you know, the thing about when, once he got AIDS, I, it's the one thing that stopped him. He actually said to somebody, and it sounds like a line from the play, I can fix anything, but I can't fix this. Mm -hmm. and, and it stopped him in his tracks, and in a way, it did humanize him. And, uh, and so in terms of, the, as the progression of the disease in, in perestroika, for me, that's sort of the most interesting stuff as he's getting worse and worse and, and how that affects him and the, and the relationship he develops with Belize. And so it's, it's endlessly interesting and challenging, yeah. this, the, the play. It, it, it always is, you come back to it and you're like, wow. And the, you know, either you see something new or it's, it's just, it's, it, it is exciting material to work on every night. 
That's a wonderful response. And just following up from that for a second, there's another American actor in London at the moment whom you will know, uh, F. Murray Abraham, who has played Roy Cohn before uh, in New York. And I had the pleasure of interviewing him a few weeks ago in a different context. And he was saying, we were talking about this production, and he said the problem for him about Roy Cohn was he hated him. He just hated him, and he couldn't get around that every show. Whereas it sounds from what you're saying as if you're able to bypass that and find the humanity. I think you have to. You can't, you know, he didn't think he was evil. He right. thought he was a swell guy. <laughs> <laughs> he, but, you know, he was, and look, you know, there are parts of him you can find that, you know, he could do nice things for people. He, could, he was very loyal. God, he was loyal. Loyalty. And it's a word that comes up a lot in the play, loyalty. And interestingly, the other word that comes up a lot is need. You know, he doesn't want to need anybody. You know, when he says to Joe, why would you need it? Need, you know, when Joe says, I need, I need him. You know, he's talking about um, Lewis. Lewis. I need him. And he says, you need. You know, it's like, uh, he don't allow yourself to be vulnerable. You don't need anybody. Live in the raw wind, naked, alone. Mm -hmm. Learn what you're capable of. Mm -hmm. And don't let anything stand in your way. You know, it's frightening advice. (laughs) But... It's how he weathered some really tough situations, bad situations. And I think what's so fascinating in the play is for all the vitriol, that final scene, because you guys have a lot of defining scenes together, that final scene between the two of you, the last thing you do is give him advice about love. Yeah, but it's, I think it's all happening in Joe's head. Okay. It's Joe giving himself that So advice. this is Joe imagining... How do, you, how do you trace your character's relationship with Roy through the play? Uh, I think there's an underlying daddy complex. Mm-hmm. I think he, uh, Roy even says it, he allows himself to imagine Roy as being his mentor, as someone who's going to protect him and look after him and bring him up the ranks and raise him. But there's also uh, a sexual undercurrent, I think, that he's either aware you of... Think? But whether Joe is aware of that or not aware of that, he absolutely basks in the attention that he receives from this very powerful, very in-charge man. And for Joe, who's very, like, kind of held back and numb, that that is fantastic. Because it doesn't seem a lot of other people are giving him a lot of interest, and suddenly this man comes along who's, like, king of the walk. And for Joe, that's that's incredibly exciting and sexy. Uh, I don't think he's aware of that. So when they have that kiss at the end, I think that's like saying goodbye to Daddy, but also getting a bit of sex in there <laughs> with Dad. I mean, well, I it's, a kind <laughs> <laughs> it's a kind of bookend to the scene, the awful scene in the uh, in my townhouse at the end, towards the end of Millennium, when right. you know I've just I've unleashed all of this stuff on him yeah. that I can't, you know I can't take anymore. His wishy-washiness. Because, you know, you want to be nice, and you can't be nice in order to, if you want to get what you want or do what you need to do. Mm. But he does, you know, when he's shaking him and saying, what do you want, then he goes to kiss him, you know, and, it's, he go, and then he pushes him away and goes to hit him. So it's an interesting thing that at that point, you know, in Joe's head, there's a sort of a tender kiss between mm. the two of them. It's such mm. a, it's a strange moment, and yet it's, very haunting. Yeah, it's yeah. haunting. But it's probably the moment of real, pure 
intimacy between two men for Joe in the in the play, you know, because mm. he's had Lewis, and that's been very kind of animalistic, and and that is just a moment of absolute honesty, I think, isn't it? And for Joe, that's probably he needs that truthfulness. He says, "Show me a lo- little of what you've learned in the world, baby Joe," and that's like, this is who I am now, maybe. We mentioned uh, Nathan in passing, but uh, we should, of, of course, return a little bit to he who shall not be named, but I'm afraid must be named, i.e. the current American president and his relationship with Roy Cohn, because when Ron Liebman played it on Broadway, when Al Pacino played it for Mike Nichols, that, that didn't matter, that wasn't relevant. Now you can't extricate that fact from the performance of the play. Tell us about how that feels to you. Well, it's not, I, I don't think about it. Um, uh, uh, I, I mean, it's been brought up to me, and, and it's certainly when you hear some of the things he's saying, you go, gee, that rings a bell. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, they met, um, uh, you know, he saw him, uh, Trump saw Roy Cohn in a club uh, and uh, went up to him, and they were, he and... He, Trump and his father Fred were being, uh, there was an uh, 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 anti-discrimination lawsuit against them because they were not uh, selling or renting to blacks or or Mm -hmm. minorities of any kind. And and, uh, so they had this huge lawsuit and it wasn't going well. And he went up to Roy and said, what what would you do? And he said, um, he said, fuck them, sue them. So they, 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 and he hired him, and they, he, they created this uh, anti-defamation lawsuit for a hundred million dollars, and just to sort of distract, and 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 eventually they settled, but Trump declared it a victory, and um, <laughs> you know, which you might have seen him do several times <laughs> over the last year, and and so. Um, he became his lawyer and mentor. So you're seeing a cruder version of, of Roy's tactics, which are, if anyone attacks you, go, come right back at them harder and accuse them of the same thing, only worse, mm. and deflect, just attack and deflect. And, and uh, so, you know, he taught him well. And uh, it's, yeah, you do, you hear it. I mean, I don't, it's not something that plays into what I'm doing in the play. I mean, there was, I just read an, it's interesting, I read an article in Vanity Fair about Trump and, and uh, Roy and Roger Stone and, you know, how, how they're, how it's ruining America. But they, and they talk about in the article his, Roy's desperate childlike need to be liked and also his, his kind of um, unrequited crushes on, on big, good-looking, waspy guys. Mm. And, and, <laughs> and so it's sort of interesting how, you know, it's, that's sort of in the play. And, and um, uh, you know, and Trump sort of fell into that when he was young, mm-hmm. you know, and, I, and, and people said he, Roy sort of had a crush on him, too. I mean, there's a piece of, uh, there's a film now out about Roger Stone, who's, you know, is, in terms of dirty politics, he's really the dirtiest. And he's, he helped the, the, the Trump campaign, but he started with the Reagan campaign many, many years ago as a young man and sort of had Reagan saying, make America great again. And, uh, and he has done the same for Trump and really, uh, you know, uh, is, I would say, uh, uh, has a largely uh, responsible for, I think, the success of Trump and his campaign. 
Uh, and um, so there's a, p a piece of film where Roy talks about Trump and says, uh, you know, I th think he's the closest thing to a genius I've ever met, he says. Wow. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Anyway, you know, you know, he, um, yeah, I, 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 yes, the Trump factor, I'm aware of it, but it doesn't really enter into, you know, it's mm -hmm. about, you know, relationships and, the, you know, mm -hmm. the scenes. It's not, I'm not thinking, I'm not thinking one day I'll find some guy and make him president. <laughs> um, Let's talk a little bit about how you both have adjusted to the rhythm of doing this play, play two part, seven and a half, whatever it is, hours. Uh, Andrew and Denise were talking about that a couple of weeks ago very eloquently. Um, Nathan, I, I remember many years ago, at, I think it was the Drama Desk Awards when you won for uh, the producers and you gave this hilarious speech detailing all the kind of medications <laughs> that had gotten you through the run because vocally playing Max Bialystok was exhausting. Does this compare uh, or Hickey? I mean, how, how are these all? Yeah, uh, well, um, uh, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just say that, the, you know, when, I, when we started here, uh, one, of, one of the things everyone kept coming up and telling me was, this is the most difficult theater to play at the National. <laughs> it's a really difficult house. And then and we started, and I found out, yes, it is. <laughs> it's a very difficult house. Um, it's, uh, w uh, you know, we wear mics in Perestroika. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, some, and you, do you wear a mic in the first play? I an no. ancestor. I don't, I, don't, I don't use a mic in the first play. Um, uh, except when we're the ancestors, it, there's mm -hmm. mic, there are mics in the costumes. But in, in Perestroika, there's so many intimate scenes and there's nothing to bounce the sound off right. of up here because it's just this vast wasteland. And so uh, I, we had to, I had to wear a mic, but it's, it, it is a strange, it's a, it's a tough house. And, and uh, so in the beginning, you kind of, you, you start to think, oh, it, it sounds, it's dead, I can't be heard, and you, you, you work a little too hard. But, as, as the run has gone on, you know, I figured out, I'm, I have figured out how to save myself because when you're doing, um, you know, seven and a half hours, you have to figure out where you can pull back a little mm -hmm. and, and still have the same effect because mm -hmm. uh, there are big emotional scenes of, of anger and rage. And, um, so that's been an interesting thing to, you know, and... Uh, uh, you just, it's like any play, you just, you figure out how to, how are you going to get through all these performances and, and, uh, and say, you know, protect your voice. You, of course, had experience at this stage, Russell, famously with Mr. Bennett's play, so the stage was familiar to you, but how has it been with this? Uh, I mean, I mean the, the same, the, the set looks incredible, but when we first got on, it, it's, it's so hard to pitch where you're going with it because... It's, it's, yeah, it's been a really tough gig, this one, like vocally and how, and how you can't, like we're sitting here now and it feels great, mm. but when you're sitting here, you can't gauge, you can't gauge it, can you? It's like, it, it's t t taken us all a long time to feel where we can go and sometimes you're too loud or you're too quiet. It's been, it's been tough, but other than that, it's been brilliant to be back here and, and we're in rep yeah. we're in rep we get a bit yeah. of time off so, time so off. you cane it and then you have a few days off if it was solid like eight shows a week solid I, I think a few of us would be getting ill if you haven't had that time to 
Yeah, it's a, I mean the schedule here is it's wacky. You, you know, you you do you do six, and then you have four days off. You do it's it's just you never know you know. And it, and if you're not feeling up to par, it, it it's kind of great to have that amount of time off because you really can catch up and yeah. get better. Um, I'm glad, Nathan, that you mentioned, because spoiler ahead for those of you who haven't seen the plays, but both of you play other roles in addition to Roy and Joe, and wonderful, I mean, particularly the, the prior priors, as it were, prior one and two, where, uh, you know, Nathan, maybe your next thing should be restoration comedy, <laughs> because it's waiting to happen. <laughs> Tell and then you, you play angels in this kind of weird consortium mm, uh, in yeah. Perestroika. Tell us about those, but does it kind of feel like being on holiday from the play? <laughs> yes, it, <laughs> it does. It does, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is, and, and uh, yes, they're audience favorites. They are. Um, well, they've become, a they've become a favorite for us. But yeah. I, I'll be honest, though, when we first started rehearsing them, I was so trying to pin down Joe, and then we kept having to rehearse the ancestors, and we'd have to rehearse the heaven bit, and I was just like, fuck off, I just we need <laughs> to focus on this guy, and we'd keep doing these rehearsals. So I was a bit frustrated to begin with, but now I'm like, it's like one of my favorite bits. Yeah. Maybe Tony should spin them off into a, a <laughs> <player> <laughs> The Heralds, oh yeah. He yeah. did write, you know, uh, uh, he had to, because there's such a quick change for me from Roy to the ancestor at the, towards the very end of the play, he did write some new material to cover the change, mm. <laughs> which is, he gave you essentially a lot of dick jokes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then gave me that thing about the um, um, clasp. What? The clasp. No, that is, no one laughs, but it is. It's a nice <laughs> word, is it? Clasp. I Sounds do apologize yeah. for my tardiness, <laughs> but I was having a bit of trouble with the clasp. <laughs> um, anyway. uh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we should say a little bit about, because this will be streamed on a podcast so people can uh. listen to it in perpetuity, uh, you're getting ready for NT Live. The first part will be later this week, yep. second part next week. Um, how far along are you with that? <coughs> what are your feelings about that? Is that going to be a whole different thing? What, what are you thinking with NT Live? Well, we've rehearsed it. We had the camera rehearsals in here, uh, which was... Um, tough to kind of do a full performance for cameras with nobody there, but we did that and they've got all their shots set up, so we're ready to go on Thursday, I think. I don't know what it's going to be like because it's going to be a, a, a different audience to a theatre audience because half the seats are taken out for right. camera rigging. Right. But um, I've done a couple of these things for PBS in, oh, in America. Course. I've done, yeah. uh, they did, they filmed The Man Who Came to Dinner Live mm -hmm. and, uh, and, uh, and a play I did for Lincoln Center called The Nance. Mm -hmm where they came in and, and over three days we, they filmed three different performances. But um, yeah, it's always a little weird because it's, they're filming a stage performance. So mm. it's not, we're not re doing a movie. Mm. Um, it's, a, it's odd. And mm. you ca ultimately you have to let go of thinking about Millions of people watching. Well, yeah, it, yeah. millions of people watching or just across the country, but just also think, oh, I have to now just make this uh, a cinematic performance mm -hmm. because you have to serve the play and the people who are there. Who are there in the moment. In the, in, in the theater seeing it. But One thing, Nathan, that I wonder uh, what your thoughts are, there haven't been that many American actors who've been on stage at the National. John Lithgow, Laurie Metcalf, whom we were talking about before, we're always, as Americans, wondering in America, could we ever have a national theater? People have tried. There are various equivalents, but nothing quite like this. Now that you're actually working here, 
what's your feeling about this building, and do you wish more than ever that America had one, or is it unique to here? Sure, I wish we had one. I, I don't know if it's the, the theater is as, is as built into our DNA as it is here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, one of the great things about this place is you, you show up and you just see, you see everybody. You see young people, you see old people, you see children, you, you see every, they're all on their computers. They're, 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 they're all, uh, no one's talking to one another. They're, <laughs> they're on their phones. They're, but there's this community of, and, then, and, and it's like a, you know, it's like a, a, a supermarket of theater here where there's just, what, and things mm -hmm. are happening. You know, the, one of the most interesting things about being backstage is you, in the dressing room, you, will, you don't hear the shows, but you hear people getting their half-hour okay. calls for these other shows. So I've heard, now we've been here so long, I, you know, I've heard Common and Consent and when they're, when they're getting ready and with the, you know, Barbershop Chronicles and, mm. you, know, you know, and then every once in a while you hear a new, you're like, what's that? Flying <laughs> Dragons? <laughs> they're having, Flying Dragons is having its tech rehearsal, apparently, and I hope that goes well. And, you know, it's just, it's so, you know, it's, it's, there's <laughs> nothing like it. And, and I don't know whether, you know, we, if it could happen. I mean, it, you, you know, it's, look, they're, they're, they're having, they, you know, funding is always an issue. And, and uh, so in America, a, a national theater, I mean, in a, in a way, you know, Lincoln Center yeah, is sort, sort of, of maybe the closest yeah. we have to something like that. But it's an extraordinary place. And, uh, and, you know, certainly when I was asked to do it, it was, it was a, that was a part of the, uh, the appeal was to, to just the, the history of being in, in this, this, this center of culture and to be, to, you know, where great, so many great actors have stood and so many great plays. It's, it's, an, it's a privilege and an honor to be here. And, and um, mm -hmm. so, yeah, I, I mean, God knows I, I would love something like this in New York, but, uh, or wherever mm -hmm. they want to have one, but it's, um, I don't. I just don't think it would be sustained. But it's 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 a miracle that it 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 it, it happens here, and 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 it's a tribute to not only to the people behind it, but the the audiences mm -hmm. who who support it. Uh, playing American, you know, Nathan's the real deal. But one of the things that is extraordinary from American friends of mine have seen this play is I've never once heard oh it's Nathan and all these British actors even though Andrew's half American. Um, is, the, is it just because everyone now knows how to do it? It's in their DNA. You played an American, well, an American play on Broadway, A View from the Bridge. Tell us about that. Um, well, it, it's slightly, I mean, we, we had like Sesame Street growing up, so you do slightly have the... <laughs> <laughs> and, and if uh, our British shows get revoiced with American voices, but we're quite happy to have the American voices as kids here. So you have, the, you have that sort of twang in your ear and... <laughs> Friends and everything, you know, that's American TV has been a staple for us. And I don't in, in the beginning, English. Joe Pitt sounded like Oscar the Crouch. <laughs> 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 he still does some nights. Um, but I mean, I, I've been lucky enough to work over there a few times and being a bit of a knob, I do walk around in the American accent, just staying in it until someone says, Russell, I'm like, oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. it's me. So you get busted. But yeah. so I, I spent a lot of time um, staying in that. Uh, which has been beneficial, yeah. actually. So no, they're impeccable. They're really, it's uh, really. You I do was, give me notes I every now and then. Out. Yeah, well, sure. Every, every time, uh, you know, you were saying Isaac, I for Isaac. Yeah, you said Isaac, 
And then you ma Maryland, you Maryland. said, you were saying. <laughs> I said at Maryland, it's Ma at American, we say Maryland. Um, yeah. But yeah, but no, no. Every and I see, see your face every time I say that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I see your face of Meryl Streep and the word Lund whenever I come to that line. <laughs> <laughs> well, Maryland. Yeah. No, no, they're uh, they're amazing. They've done, uh, you know. Yes, uh, I was I was really impressed by all of that. Just the, you know, and the and they obviously we had great um, uh, dialect. Yeah, we did. Yeah. People here. Yeah. Uh, we have to bring this to a close, which is a shame. But please join me in thanking Nathan Lane and Russell Toby. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs>